open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 42. We're uh, gradually getting towards the end of this story of uh, Joseph, our sermon series on the life of Joseph. Two more messages left. Um, but you know, the writer of one of the songs that we just sang a few minutes ago, Matt Mayer, uh, he tells how uh, that song that he uh, rearranged actually was based on the old hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. And his new arrangement, as we sang it, uh, begins with a statement, a five-word statement, that I believe is maybe going out of fashion in the contemporary church. Do you remember the first five words of that song? Anyone tell me? Lord, I come, I confess. Confession has always been an integral part of the Christian experience. As John the Apostle writes in his first letter, John, 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9, he says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The forgotten truth, I believe, of the Christian experience is that confession is good for the soul. And now let me be clear, I'm not advocating really that we should set up a confessional box here in the church and that I should be the father confessor. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is that we should be regularly, individually, personally exercising the practice of confession to God as a result of our sensitivity to our conscience. And it's one of the beautiful aspects of the Lord's table each Sunday, isn't it? That we examine ourselves and we confess if we have need to confess as our conscience brings to mind some thoughts or some deeds, some actions, some words maybe, since we last came around the table that we need to confess. However, it seems to me, you know, as I've had the opportunity both in Canada and, and even here in the last three years since coming home, that as I've had opportunity to meet with people, to counsel with people over the years, some Christians seem to find it hard to apologize seem to find it hard to say sorry or ask for forgiveness from each other and more importantly from, from God uh, when they've sinned in some way or caused offense to anyone, especially to a fellow believer. It's a strange sort of thing within the Christian community that we find that hard to do. Uh, personal confession appears to be a disappearing spiritual discipline and I think it's linked very much to our consciences, our consciences becoming desensitized or numb to the nature of sin in our own lives and in the culture in which we live in. 20 years ago, Pastor John MacArthur warned in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, Drawing the Line in a No-Fault, Guilt-Free World. And of course, that no-fault thing is everywhere, isn't it? It's even in insurance policies. Uh, where it's a no-fault accident, okay, 
your insurance company look after you and their insurance company look after them, but there's no one at fault. He said this, the rapid increase in the pervasiveness and openness of sin is paralleled by a decreasing sensitivity to conscience. Our culture has declared a war on guilt. No one, after all, is supposed to feel guilty. Guilt is not conducive to dignity and self-esteem, so society encourages sin, but it will not tolerate the guilt that sin produces. I said that 20 years ago, and it's still true today. Guilt, listen, guilt is real. And let me tell you, guilt is good. Guilt is good. And I believe that we need to be reminded from time to time about the reality that, that, uh, of that God-given instrument of discernment that helps us to be able to know right from wrong. Because our natural inclination, if we're honest, is to ignore sometimes the voice of our conscience when it speaks. Warren Wiersbe in his book, Meet Your Conscience, says, you can stifle it or you may even quench it, but you'll never be able to escape it. It will always be there attaching itself to the highest standard that you know. And the standards you adopt in life will determine whether you have a pure or a defiled conscience, a strong or a weak conscience. See, conscience is the soul's automatic warning system. Hardwired into every human being, into every human soul by God. It's, it's switched on all the time. And it's that which approves, you know, what we, uh, what we do is right or when we do right. And, and it accuses when we do wrong. Someone has compared the conscience to a sundial, which is able to give fairly good time by day when the sun is shining, of course. But it's incapacitated at night. And in the same way, conscience is designed by God to function in the light of our knowledge of the word of God and of God himself. By the light, light of God's word. We're not reading it, let me share. Conscience is left in the dark and, and can become completely dysfunctional. Our conscience can also be likened, I think, to an alarm clock, which in its functional design is to go off when we violate God's moral code. But alarm clocks can be turned on or off as it suits us. They can be turned down so they no longer disturb us. And of course, there's the ever-present snooze button. Ever used the snooze button on the alarm clock? Because we're all experts at justifying and rationalizing our attitudes and our behavior even when we know that they're wrong. That was brought home to me in many, many times by my wife. Uh, so I used to say that uh, whenever I hear the voice of conscience, it speaks to me in the same tone as my wife. <laughs> One little boy was asked what conscience was. And after he scratched his head for a minute, he said, Conscience? That's something that makes you tell your mother you've done wrong before your sister does. Conscience is part of God's creative work. We're all made in the image of God, and so we were, we were given a mind to think with, a heart to feel with, and a will to decide with and to choose with. And Paul says in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, that, that, that the person who violates their conscience is sinning against their creator and damaging themselves. And this applies universally 
whether the person is a believer or not. We've all got a conscience. Now, we spent some time talking about that before. You probably don't remember. It was back in August last year. But this idea of guilt and conscience comes up again in the story of Joseph. And we're going to read about it in chapter uh, chapter 42. Just uh, some of the verses here. We're not going to read all of the chapter. Now, when Jacob, that's Joseph's father, learned there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so we may live and not die. Of course, this family was living in Canaan, and the famine had affected them there. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt, but Jacob didn't send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land and one who sold grain to all his people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they said, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. Oh no, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said, you've come to see where our, our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now our, with our father and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, your spies. And this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother and the rest of you will be kept in prison so that, by, so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. And if you're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you're spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you'll live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They didn't realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and he began to weep and then turned back and spoke to them again. And he said, uh, and he had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. And after this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to feed his donkey. And he saw his silver in the mouth of the sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in the sack. And their hearts sank. And they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? And we'll end the reading there, knowing God will bless the public reading of his word. So here in Genesis 42, we meet the brothers of Joseph again. Those who long ago had 
put the sundial of their soul in the dark. And they're a study of what happens when you put your conscience on snooze. But God's about to awaken their sleeping conscience. Years before, under the leadership of Simeon and Levi, they, they had deceived the village and slaughtered the men, taking the women and children captive and in, in retaliation to one man violating their sister. Reuben the oldest uh, had slept with his father's concubine and Judah, we looked at that in depth, had two sons so wicked God killed them and he himself slept with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking her to be a prostitute. And all the brothers, except for Benjamin, had conspired together to sell Joseph into slavery and then lied to their father to cover up their sin by telling him a wild animal had attacked him and killed him. And maybe Joseph's brothers thought that the passing of time would remove their guilt. And after all, they hadn't seen their brother or heard of him since that fateful day when they tossed him into the pit and sold him uh, in slavery to the Midianites and then watched the caravan take him away in chains as a slave on his way to Egypt. And slaves, of course, in those days didn't have a very long lifespan usually, so they might reasonably have assumed that Joseph was long since dead. And whatever moral judgments might be made, they couldn't bring Joseph back and would certainly never see him again. And if their conscience maybe had pricked them from time to time, if the unending sorrow on Jacob's weather-beaten face reminded them of what they had done, they had long since, it seems, learned how to deal with it, to hide it, to cover it, or quickly change the subject if, if, the, if, if the name of Joseph came up at any time. And two decades, 20 years had now passed. And they've papered over their guilty consciences. Joseph was out of sight. He was out of mind. And life in Canaan had been comfortable because they were even blending in and compromising with the paganism all around them. As an aside, that's one of the reasons that God had to, had to take, take them out of Canaan eventually into captivity into Egypt as slaves in order to bring them back into the promised land. But that's another story. But meanwhile, down in, down in, in Egypt, hundreds of miles away, through a sequence of events so unbelievable that no one could have dreamed it up, not even Joseph, the brothers are about to find out that God will surely awaken their guilty conscience to what they had done 20 years before. And they're about to learn that you can't hide from God. Numbers 32, 23, be sure, be sure your sin, your disobedience will find you out. Galatians 6 and 7 says, don't be deceived. God is not to be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And the brothers have been sowing deception and lies for a long, long time. But now the reaping day has come. And sooner or later, you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost. And eventually the skeletons are going to come out of the, the cupboard. Last week I mentioned that we can't go back to the past. And while that's true, we can't go back to live in the past. We can't go back to change the past, but sooner or later we have to face the past and deal with it, whatever it is. Jesus said in Luke 8 and 17, there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. You know, conscience is a good, good gift because our conscience can help keep us out of trouble. It's not infallible. And it's not the same it's not the same as the Holy Spirit. 
because it doesn't have the power to compel us into good and honest behavior. Our conscience can be defiled, but God's Holy Spirit can't be defiled. He remains as a holy, sinless presence and influence in our hearts and in our lives, helping us to interpret the message that is sent by our conscience. It's important to remember that while God doesn't desire us to oversensitize our our conscience with needless neurotic guilt, some people get into that frame of mind, At the same time, he doesn't want our conscience to be desensitized or defiled. Conscience is like, you know, a traffic light that that, that flashes green or yellow or red. And of course, with traffic lights, as some of you know and I know, you can still run the red light if you want to, but you'll initially know in your heart or by accident or by an accident that happens that you've done something wrong. Mark Twain once said that a clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. (laughs) And if we run the red light often enough, we can quell the voice of conscience so much that we'll no longer feel any guilt about doing it. We'll just keep on doing it. True, really, about a lot of things, what once seemed wrong doesn't seem so bad after a while if you keep doing it. Once kept you awake at night doesn't, doesn't bother you anymore. What once made your cheeks blush with shame hardly enters your mind. Keep on doing things we shouldn't do. Not confessing them to God. Old American Indian who became a Christian said, In my heart there's now an arrow with a sharp point to it. If I do wrong, the arrowhead turns and it cuts me. Cuts me to the quick. But if I do wrong too much and too often, I wear out the point on the arrow and it doesn't hurt me so much. A hundred years ago, Scottish writer Thomas Carlyle made this profound statement. He said, the deadliest sin is the consciousness of no sin. Hey, we have not sinned. We're liars, the Bible says. And went to see his psychiatrist one time. He said, I've been doing things I shouldn't be doing. And I know I shouldn't be doing them. And my conscience is troubling me. And the psychiatrist said, well, okay, so do you want me to give you some counsel uh, so that it will help will, help will strengthen your, your, your willpower so you don't do the wrong thing and you do the right thing and you confess? And he said, well, no. I was kind of hoping you'd give me something that would weaken my conscience. As far as we know, Joseph's brothers had never repented of their sin. Not to God, not to their father, and certainly not to Joseph. They just did what we sometimes tend to do when we've done something we shouldn't have done. We pretend like nothing has happened. I would often have been driving. My driving is pretty good, but it's not always good. And I would have maybe done something that I shouldn't have done in the car. And my wife, Pat, would have turned around to me and just simply said, Lord, and knowing that I had done something wrong, I'd say, what? What? If I didn't know. And we're all like that, aren't we? We're all like that. And nothing has happened. We suppress the thought. We, we press through the guilt. But we even sometimes, for some people, they will live a lie. Christian professor before giving the students their exam papers, would challenge them with these words. 
He says, today you're going to be examined in two examinations. One is trigonometry, whatever that is. And the other is honesty. I hope you'll pass both of them. But if you must fail one, fail trigonometry. There are many good people in the world who can't pass trigonometry, but there are no good people in the world who can't pass the examination of honesty. Here in Genesis 42, we've come to the moment where in the providence of God, Joseph is going to test his brother's honesty. The famine had extended to Canaan, and slowly their own grain supply had dwindled to nothing, and they're facing starvation. Their father Jacob hears that there's grain in Egypt, so he, he tells ten of his sons to take a potentially dangerous journey to Egypt to buy grain. Now, now it's interesting to me that it was the ten sons who didn't descend from Rachel, Jacob's one true love, who would take the trip. Benjamin, it appears, was now the new Joseph in his father's eyes. And we see something of Jacob's indifference to his first ten sons when he says in verse 4, I'm afraid that some, uh, some harm may befall him. That's why he's not going with you. You can go, but he's not going. The unspoken message was, if harm befalls the ten sons, it's no big loss. But if it, if it befalls Benjamin, that'll be a tragedy. That's what he was saying. Let me just pause here for a second and, and say that in a family... And this church is blessed with families, young and old. But in a family, comparing siblings unfavorably is never a good idea. Don't do it. Don't say, why can't you be more like your sister? Don't dare say, why can't you be more like your brother? That not only puts the child down, it also builds animosity and resentment towards the favored brother or sister. And it will achieve nothing but a double negative effect with no positive results whatsoever. This might initially explain why there was hesitancy on the part of the, the ten brothers. Because it perplexes Jacob into asking, verse 1, why do you keep looking at each other? They're filled with indecision and Jacob can't figure it out. They had a reputation for being men of action. Yet faced with their own starvation and the starvation of their families, they dragged their feet. And everyone knows that it's in Egypt where the food is to be found. So Shakespeare's Hamlet insightfully says, Conscience makes cowards of us all. The truth is that Egypt is a word that they've barely whispered in 20 years. Because it was a place synonymous with their guilt and with their regret. Jacob, Egypt is a neutral word. That's where the food is. But for these ten brothers, the mention of Egypt goes off like a bomb in their conscience. And so, through this famine, God has orchestrated to take them where they would never, ever have gone themselves. Many of us have also got trigger points, I believe, in our lives where mere mention sometimes of just a word can fill us with regret or with guilt. Here we see their sleeping conscience is beginning to stir. And how God often uses a crisis and his grace to stir our conscience, to bring us to repentance. Because to have a clear conscience, I have to be right with God. But I also have to be right with my fellow man. 
especially in the church of God with my fellow believers. But be right with God, yes, but right with each other as well. Their conscience sleep for 20 years. Now God's given them a wake-up call. And so he sends them on a week-long 250-mile trek because the greatest famine was the one in their souls. And we can brush our sin under the rug and hope that enough years will take care of it. But one day, perhaps years later, God will allow some sort of crisis or apply some sort of pressure in our life. And our conscience will stir and our sin will suddenly flash as vividly as as high definition television in front of us. Into our conscience and mind. God lovingly, I believe, put these brothers in a crisis of a famine to draw them to himself. Because we can't be treated for a disease until we're aware that there's a problem. And God was slowly bringing them to that point of understanding their problem. Because the brothers had no idea that Joseph was alive. So God ordains Joseph to wisely conceal his identity from his brothers. Now some people have wondered, well, why why Joseph doesn't immediately identify himself to his brothers? He recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. Why didn't he he say who he was in relation to them? Well, it's easy for us to look through 2019 eyes, if you like, and think, why doesn't he confront them as soon as he sees them? Why, Why does he string them along? Why not say, I'm your brother. It's good to see you again. By the way, I'm not a slave anymore. I'm the prime minister of Egypt. And the simple answer is because God's hand is in all of this. And I believe if Joseph were left to himself, he'd have revealed his identity as soon as he recognized him. But he was restrained by God, who was using him for the salvation of his brethren. And Joseph realizes that this is not some coincidence that they have arrived, but that he's just at the right place at just the right time when his brothers come to buy food. This is a divine appointment It wasn't God's plan for them to know about Joseph until after their loyalties have been proven. And isn't it true that there are many things that we would like to know now, but God hasn't chosen to reveal them to us yet? And yet our obedience to him is to be absolute and is to be immediate in the absence of his full disclosure. We're still to obey him. We don't put God to the test and tell him what he must do to earn our faith in him. No, God puts us to the test. And genuine faith bows in submission to his will. We're to obey God even when it doesn't make sense, even when it doesn't seem practical, even when it's going to be costly. We're still to obey God. And Joseph, here in his position as the prime minister of Egypt, second in command, he could have immediately confronted them. He could have incarcerated them for the remainder of their lives or even had them executed. But remember that during those 20 years in Egypt, while things have drastically changed for Joseph time and time again, little seems to have changed back home in Canaan. So Joseph wants to know, have they really changed? Is there any hope that they will change? And he knew that an initial confrontation might only have brought about a cover story without a true change of heart. Joseph wasn't interested merely in their physical needs. He wanted true reconciliation with him and with God. 
all the years in Egypt and, and during the time of his rise to power, he had never forgotten his aged father. He'd never stopped thinking about his brothers. He never disowned the family of his birth. Deep down in his heart, Joseph was still a Hebrew, the son of Jacob, and still part of the family that he longed to see again. And if he just gave them food and sent them on their way, there would be no reconciliation. He wanted to see his family put back together again. But he had some questions that needed answered first. Will they own up to what they have done to him? Have they truly repented? Do they still hate him? Do they even want him to be part of their family? Questions like that. And so now these ten brothers who, are, who were so determined to prevent the dreams of Joseph 20 years earlier, they're now about to unwittingly fulfill them. Isn't that amazing? We might say that God was using their free will to accomplish his predestined purpose. And let me say that again in case you didn't get it. God was using their free will to accomplish his predestined purpose. Joseph's dreams are coming to fruition as they bow before him, as he had first dreamed 20 years before. But Joseph then accuses his brothers three times of being spies. He knows they're not spies, but he's testing their hearts. And sometimes, you know, God allows his people to be sometimes falsely accused of things just to reveal the response of their hearts. When we're wrongly accused, do we threaten and swear retaliation? Do we remind people of who they're dealing with? Like we're above accusation? Or do we humbly listen and search our hearts to see if there's any truthfulness maybe in the accusation before we dismiss it out of hand? Notice in verse 13. How they said that they were 12 brothers in all. The youngest is with our father and one is no more. So they told Joseph about Benjamin when they could have lied. But they were honest. And they even included Joseph as the one who is no more. <laughs> They're telling the very one who is no more that he is no more. Isn't that crazy? And Joseph can see a degree of honesty beginning to emerge. And notice how it's as if Joseph is reenacting the scene that took place 20 years before. They had oppressed him. Now he's pressing them a little bit. They had accused him of spying on them for their father. And now he accuses them of being spies. They had thrown him into a pit. Now he tosses them into a prison. And most of all, he called them to bring forth their youngest brother, the favorite of their father who now occupied the place in their father's heart that he once occupied. Joseph had thrown them into this dungeon. They had no idea that, that they were going to get out. And it's a reminder that God sometimes uses time for reflection to awaken our conscience. God is resurrecting their cold conscience by using the pain of physical need to bring them to Egypt. And now he uses the solitude of a of a physical imprisonment to give them time to think about what they have done in the past. A person with a guilty conscience will usually resist solitude and prefer to be always doing something to distract and divert away from the, the guilty conscience. But as often as not, it's in solitude that people meet God. Three days in the dungeon must have been miserable for them. But when those three days were up, Joseph stuns his brothers with yet another statement. Verse 18, 
do this and live, for I fear God. Although it must have been strange to hear, chills of mercy must have run up and down their guilty spines when this powerful ruler invoked the name of their God and then followed it up with a, a lighter sentence. The original plan was for them to stay in prison while one, one went home uh, to get Benjamin. And Joseph had the right to do that, especially after all they'd done to him. It would have been more than just, but Joseph demonstrates his grace to them. And they're filled with hope and encouragement as Joseph now releases the brothers except Simeon to go home and return with Benjamin. Let that be an encouragement to someone here this morning. In his justice, God is also merciful. And even when our circumstances seem dark, when our cup seems too bitter, God has already sweetened it with his tender mercies so that we'll not be overwhelmed beyond our endurance. And even our momentary, as Paul calls it, afflictions, God is still working in all things together for the ultimate good of his people and his own glory. And it's interesting that it's only after Joseph has given this expression uh, to his faith that his brothers began to recognize the hand of God in their lives through these events. They're allowed to take life-sustaining grain, food for their needy families on the promise to return with Benjamin. And the words of verse 20 says, and they proceeded, and this they proceeded to do, it shows that they agreed to Joseph's terms. And their conscience is still being woken up. And they're beginning to connect the dots that link their past sinful behavior to their present circumstances. And they start to take responsibility for their sin because at some point, at some point, we've all got to face a guilty conscience and an unrepentant past, no matter what it is. They're on the road to repentance. And Joseph's compassion is further seen in that when he overhears his brother's conversation about their past sin, he's so overcome with emotion that he leaves the room to, to weep. And when he returns, he binds Simeon in front of them. And they only saw the binding, but not his tears. So they may have thought Joseph to be cruel, maybe and hard, when in fact he was acting out of the deepest feelings of love for them, reflecting God's tender yet firm discipline towards all of us to bring us to repentance and confession when we need to. And so off they go, back to Canaan with supplies. And under the obligation to do the honest thing and come back with the youngest brother, Benjamin. And you know, as they stop, as it tells us, they stop at a kind of a, a desert apple service center somewhere. One of them notices the silver that they had brought to pay for the supplies is still in their possession. And initially it says their hearts sank, thinking that Joseph may regard them as thieves. They'd got the grain, but they hadn't left the silver behind to pay for it. Because they didn't know that Actually, it was Joseph who had set this up as another test of their honesty. And it was in this predicament that for the very first time in the entire story, the brothers mentioned God. Verse 28, what is this that God has done to us? And they're finally turning towards God. And good things, you know, come to those who turn towards God. And Joseph's motive in his dealings with his brothers in this way was to see them broken before God, repentant, which he knew from experience to be the only place of blessing. And if you know the extent of your own sin or you have any inkling of God's 
holiness. You and I will exclaim with David in praising God. Psalm 103 verse 10. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Even when God's discipline seems harsh, it's never anywhere close to what we deserve. Joseph's brothers, of course, were neutral. They were neutral over the 20 years because of their unresolved guilt. So as we draw this to a close, what about us this morning? What about you this morning? Is there any hint of unresolved guilt that's sidelining you, that's eaten away at you about something that happened this week? Month? No? Test? But right with God. Not deal with it this morning. Deal with it this morning. If God is reawakening your conscience, please don't turn away from Him in denial of your sin. Turn to Him in genuine repentance and you'll experience the sweet taste of His abundant grace. Just like Joseph, God wants and desires to forgive and to restore us. See, time itself does not erase a guilty conscience. The ache will linger even after everyone in the family has groaned, even after the crime is dismissed in the courtroom, even after the divorce is final and you've walked away without any biblical justification, even after things done in secret are far from anyone else's awareness. The ache will linger. Conscience will provoke guilt. For the moment Adam took that bite of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil he was told he wasn't to touch, his conscience immediately began to trouble him. Steal their troubled consciences. Adam and Eve, as you know, sewed fig leaves together, made themselves coverings. Why did David cry out time and time again, Lord, have mercy on me? Because of his conscience, things that he had done. Why did Peter weep when the, the cock crew for the third time? It was his conscience. Judas said, I've betrayed innocent blood and even his 30 pieces of silver, conscience money, couldn't console him and he committed suicide. And I said, there's no pillow so soft as a clear conscience. Conscience will make your bed a bed of hot coals if you've disobeyed God and you're not willing to repent. Your behavior goes one way and your conscience is screaming at you to go the other way. You'll become torn. You'll have no peace. And if you don't do something about a bad conscience, it will destroy your joy. It will destroy your character. It will destroy your fellowship with God. It will destroy your peace and cause sleepless, tossing and turning nights. One man was very struck by his conscience and to put his conscience to rest. And so he wrote to the local tax office. He said, I've cheated on my income tax for years. I can't sleep. Here's a, here's a check for 75 euro. If I still can't sleep, I'll send you the balance. Let me just say, if you're sensing this morning that your conscience needs to have a cleansing of the blood of Christ because of guilt from the past, don't hesitate. Because if you don't come to Christ, if you don't come to the cross of Christ, not only will what light you have now begin to turn dim and into darkness, but you'll cause others to live in the shadow of that darkness around you as well. The person who has a guilty past 
unrepentant will eventually do damage to their spouse, to their family, and to their friends. The teenager who has a guilty past will eventually do damage to, to his parents or her parents and friends. This morning on the authority of God's word, no matter how guilty your past or how dark your conscience may be about something or anything, if you come to Christ and confess your need of cleansing in an attitude of true repentance, he will cleanse you, he will restore you, he will wash the window of your soul clean and the light of his love and his mercy and his grace will start to shine and flow in and through your life like never before because where sin abounds, much more does grace abound. Amen.